Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Post Post Podcast, where I talk to creative minds about their inspiring professional journeys. I'm your host, David Gidali, and this is episode 30. And in this episode, I'm talking to the author of The Filmmaker's Guide to Visual Effects, uh, Aaron Dinor. He's a visual effects supervisor, uh, lives in New York, he's originally from Israel, has a really interesting uh, professional backstory. Visual effects is actually his second career. Um, and uh, this book that he wrote is, uh, I think, very valuable, especially for pil- filmmakers um, who often do need some uh, insight into the inner workings of a visual effects studio or visual effects, the, basically the process of visual effects. And um, uh, I think he did a great service to the visual effects community by writing this book. And he has a new book coming out as well about photorealism. This is a spoiler. Um, but... Uh, I think it's uh, it's a great conversation that we had. Uh, we talked about what made him come and write this book and his uh, journey into visual effects in the first place, and uh, you know just his attitude towards uh, the industry and uh, the future of the industry and uh, the present during COVID and how it affects everything. Uh, and uh, without further ado, I give you episode thirty of the Post Post Podcast. First of all, you're, you're based in New York, but you're originally from Israel, mm-hmm. uh, right? And visual effects is not your first career. Um, usually the Post Post podcast is about people who ventured away from post-production and started new careers like directors. This is kind of my first, uh, my first uh, interest in making this podcast was to talk to people that have managed to take that leap that I'm trying to do, you know, is to kind of expand beyond just being in visual effects, but also being a storyteller and, and uh, leveraging my knowledge in visual effects. And you've kind of did a, uh, a different journey where you started somewhere else completely. You had a career um, as a composer, a music composer for, for film, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I got to say that when I was a little kid, around five, I loved music already, but I was also drawing um, I think pretty, uh, uh, pretty impressive drawings. And after that, I lost it completely. <laughs> uh, I would never be able to draw the way I did at five. So some, something in there, and I, and I loved building things with Lego and stuff. So maybe there was some visual side back there that got buried underneath the, um, the audio or the, the musical side, which, you know, was my big love. So, yeah, I became a musician. I, um, I you know, studied as a classical musician um, and composer, I wrote music. I studied at Juilliard. Um, oh wow! Back then, <laughs> uh, two years in the pre-college and one year in the college, and I went back to Israel to serve in the army. And in the army, I was in a, what we call in Hebrew la Katzvayit, which is not an army band. It's a, it's an army rock group, yeah, of sort. And um, after that, I worked as a keyboard player, playing with different uh, singers. And then I started writing for uh, theater, and. Um, and I got to mention, a, for, for people who don't know, Juilliard is one of the world's top music schools. Uh, what you described, La Katzveit in Israel, is, is really hard to get into. So you had a very, uh, uh, you started started off with a bang in a, in a field that uh, I think a lot of people, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of people's dreams to, to just experience what you have. And uh, if you joined the army, that means well, you were... 
you were pretty young at the time, right? I guess 18 or a little older? Well, I was a little older because I had to postpone it because I was here. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I was 20 when I joined the army. But it, it sounds very easy when you <laughs> we say like this. But, of course, there's a lot of uh, struggles on the way. One of them right. was when I joined the army, I, I had to switch from being a classical musician to being like a, a rock a kind rock of musician. pop musician where you play more by ear and mm-hmm. uh, you improvise more. And it wasn't easy for me at the beginning at all. Got it. Um, but, you know, at every step I learned something new, which I think was, I think this is kind of the main thing in my life, also right. going into visual effects. But um, I wasn't very happy being a, a keyboard player and playing on stage. And what I really enjoyed was writing music for theater. And that became the main career I had in Israel. And I wrote music for all of the major theaters in Israel. And uh, also, you know, even one prize is like the equivalent of the Tony here (laughs) in Israel twice. Um, It was a good career. So, yeah, that makes the jump even more kind of strange. Like, why why would I want to leave a a pretty successful career? You know, and I could actually uh, make a living from music, which is not easy. Yeah. Um, not, you know, not a lot of it, but, you know, I could, I could make a decent living from writing music for theater. Um, I, it's just, I, I, I discovered 3d totally by accident. I was playing with my newly purchased computer because I even started having computers pretty late in the game when I realized I could use them for, to produce music. Um, and I just downloaded True Space. I, I don't know if that 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 used to be a three D software. It doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, uh, it's all it's a uh, defunct old, now. Right. Yeah, and um, I just played with it, and I, it was mind boggling for me. There's something of the Lego from my childhood came back, and like I can actually build stuff with it, and <laughs> I can render out views, and that's how it started. It was just a hobby, and it I went know. on side by side with the music, which was a profession. And I would sit in rehearsals, and on the side I had like a learn Maya book. You know, that was before <laughs> uh, online tutorials, so I actually right. had to buy books. And um, I, I just I tried to learn as much as I can. So I taught myself, you know, Maya and 3D Studio Max and animation and and rendering and you know texturing everything. I, I just wanted you, to swallow everything. Did you did you do it just out of curiosity and sort of? Uh, love for visual storytelling or or did you have like kind of a, a, a an eagerness to to expand and to maybe work in a different field like where where do you think that kind of uh, motivation came from to to dive into something new you know how these things work it started out as something that was just a lot of fun mm-hmm. uh, and it was fascinating just and I think what I love the most is the ability to recreate things that do not exist and make them look real. I think that, that that kind of synthesis of reality was also something I was dealing with a lot in music because I was using a lot of samples and sample players and, and synthesizers to create um, orchestral music uh, for theater or other things. So I was I enjoyed like the, oh, I can make a violin sound almost like a real violin kind of thing. And I think right. I... I um, it switched over to the visual side. And at some point I started playing with a program called view that still exists. Um, it's been there for a while that specializes in, you know, creating, uh, landscapes. Um, and because I love landscapes and I love landscape photography and I, I just, the, the ability to like create something 
synthesize something that looks convincing, looks like a photo, uh, was fascinating for me. So that's that was the main motivation. At the beginning, I wasn't thinking that I'll be working in it at all. Yeah. And then I was saying like, yo, maybe one day I'm going to be an animator in a, a little studio in Israel or something. I, I didn't think much beyond that. I, right. I certainly didn't think that one day I'll be working, you know, on, on Hollywood movies and, you know, with uh, there, it's, it's not, wasn't even there. And I wasn't specifically interested in visual effects at that point. I was just interested in creating stuff in right. CG. Creating worlds. I think I remember, I mean, I, I had the same start when I, the first thing I think I did in 3D was like a, a photorealistic kitchen which was yeah. not photorealistic. It was supposed to be photorealistic, but it was not. But you thought it was photoreal. I thought it at the time. <laughs> uh, Look, photorealism grows with us as right. we learn this stuff. You know? Exactly. <laughs> then you look uh, back at what you did and you're like, oh, no, that's... I know, yeah. <laughs> at first you're excited that, that, that you have like shadows that, may, you know, right. that, that it draws shadows automatically and, and it has shows like a sense of depth. And, then you're, and I think a big part of, of uh, what drew me into it was seeing... Uh, at the time, seeing what, what was done professionally around the world. So I think uh, there was a, a computer game. There's a bunch of computer games at the time. I'm talking about late 90s uh, that started using 3D. Uh, it was pre-rendered 3D. It wasn't even real time like they do today. Right. Um, and they started using pre-rendered 3D to kind of build worlds and all that. And and I just remember being inspired by by those worlds and and especially because I had access to them because a game you can just load into the computer and watch it over and over again. Um, and uh, did you also have uh, some kind of uh, work, of, you know, a certain work that inspired you at the time to sort of dive into it? And Well, game is one thing. Look, I played very few games in my life. I'm, I'm not a gamer. Um, what I loved was Myst. And, uh, yeah. yeah, I think a lot know, of... <laughs> a lot of artists, a lot of 3D artists uh, had missed as their kind of early inspiration. Yeah. And the third, I think it was a third installation was missed, uh, Riven, I think. Right. Uh, and then I think they did it mostly in what was then soft image, which doesn't mm -hmm. exist anymore. But I think that just, that just blew me away. Like when I, when I played that game, it just, and it was, even if you look at it now, it looks uh, very impressive. Right. Yeah, and it wasn't really, you couldn't really, yeah, you couldn't really move in 3D, you know, you just like yeah. jump from one slide to the other and turn around. But, and so that was one thing, but I think the, um, the attraction to visual effects and especially to matte painting, that was um, the Lord of the Ring installation. So Lord of the Rings, uh, I watched that and, and, you know, those sweeping, you know, wide shots of those New Zealand mountains, plus all the added kind of castles and villages yeah. that they did as matte painting. Um, to me, that that was just. Uh, then I knew that I would one day I would want to do something like that. I, I think. I so see. Um, it started. Yeah, games was there, but uh, I think um, these types of movies really. And and I'm curious uh, when you were. Uh, when you were kind of diving into it and seeing how complicated it was, you know, I can, I remember myself, I was 16 or 17 when I started playing with it. Uh, I felt like I had my, the whole future in front of me and, you know, uh, 
this is sort of what I wanted to do anyway. I wanted to be a storyteller. And I knew that I was also, by the way, uh, a musician, but um, an amateur musician. I, I played classical music oh, I as a kid and stuff. Yeah. Oh. Um, and I remember music, usually, like music actually came very easy to me, uh, especially when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, playing from hearing. And uh, I mean, I, I hate notes. I, I, I never, and every time I, I learned how to play something, it was from listening to my teacher playing it and kind of uh, slowly reconstructing it in my brain. Um, and um, and improvising, like I, I had a knack for it, but I always, for some reason, felt like it was, it was not going to be my profession um, just because it's too much fun and it's something I want to be able oh. to do in, in my, in my, I want to be able to to get to it when I feel like it, and I don't want to be forced to sit in front of the computer because when you're forced, in, you know, to do something, I or, no, sorry, that, in front that's of the really interesting. What, what you're saying is really interesting because you're saying that you didn't want to make something a profession because it was too much fun, right? And for me, it works the other way around. It's like I really want to do something that's a lot of fun. It becomes a profession, and then it's less fun. Right. (laughs) That's what happened with music. You know, it became a profession. At some point, I felt like I'm just, you know, doing stuff to get paid for. Right. And I got to say that it's not like I don't like doing visual effects anymore, but it changes from something that's just... That you did for fun. Yeah, for... You just want to do it all day long. That's something that you're like, okay, time to go home, you know, (laughs) or in these days, time to uh, log out. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because yeah. we don't go home anymore we are home but yeah it's interesting that you wanted to kind of preserve and protect the fun part and not make, right. it, a, uh, make it a profession yeah 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 i mean I, i'm I'm saying it now i don't remember if I, I, it's hard to tell back then if it was conscious a conscious decision not to do it uh professionally i, I know my mom was against me doing it professionally like oh very uh it's not a profession yeah yeah no she wanted me to be she wanted me to, to study because she wanted to teach me perseverance and, and, uh, and to kind of, uh, uh, and commitment that was very important to her. So I wanted to stop many times just because it was just boring sometimes sitting with the teacher and, and reading notes because I didn't like that part. Um, but that's something that she really pushed me to do sort of to kind of get the skill and, and learn that not everything in life comes easy and you have to kind of push harder and like persevere. So I think I've, I've definitely taken that experience into everything later that I've sort of forced myself to, you know, to self, uh, uh, self study. Uh, but yeah, she was definitely against, she, she was just not seeing uh, it as a viable profession, just because how hard it is to be successful. And uh, we have people in our family who are who also went to Juilliard and and who are oh. professional musicians uh, in our extended family, not very close family. But uh, but she could she could tell back then it was it was really a, a tough mountain to climb, and she wanted me to have a secure job, you know, as a uh, ideally as an engineer or something like that, and you know, to have. Ironically, I never ended up being any of that and i'm still in a very tough uh position you know trying to to make a name of of myself and but i think it's remarkable one thing i wanted to say is that um when i started i was 16 and i felt like i had the whole world you know the whole my whole life in front of me and diving into something this kind of technologically complicated um especially without online tutorials and without a lot of uh you know without a big community to support you and to provide you with the knowledge was um, was something I can't even imagine myself doing at this. And I'm not even as old as I think you were when you, when you made the switch. Uh, yeah. 
I'll, I'll, I, I don't. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll preface it by saying there's a great podcast that uh, that you did with Alan McKay. Uh, it's, All right, uh, yeah. And, and I'm a big fan of Alan McKay's podcast. It's uh, if anybody wants, I highly encourage episode 172 of the Alan McKay podcast with you. I think it was a few years ago, two years or something, or like a couple ago. years, yeah. Um, but uh, you guys really talked about like this journey as well, uh, which is which is which was great to listen to. So I mean, but obviously we're talking about here it here again. So uh, uh, just uh, if anybody wants another another angle, that's a, that's a great podcast to listen to. But anyway, back to uh, what you were saying about uh, oh, we're talking about. Starting about at age a, and starting, yeah. Like, yeah. Look, it's something I, I use myself as an example to my students. So, I'm, I've been teaching at the School of Visual Arts in New York, uh, SVA. This is my eighth year. Oh, wow! And, um, yeah, and I teach at a senior class, so that's you know, they're, they're working on their thesis project, and that's where they, you know, soon they're going to graduate and start their life, right? And it's really important for me to not just teach them how to do stuff in Nuke or compositing, but also give them some advice um, um, as they start, because I know how daunting it all feels, especially right. when you're young. <laughs> and one of the things I, I've, you know, I really, it's really important for me to stress out that it's never too late. Yeah. And you, can, you should not, <laughs> yeah, <coming>. you should <laughs> not look at your life and say, well, I have to take decisions now and they're going to shape my entire life and that's it. Right. It's, if you look at it that way, it, it feels even more daunting and it's also wrong because um you know and and, you know yeah i started so the big change was when i was hired by ilm singapore and moved with my family because i already was married with two little kids wow moved uh, the young one was um uh, only a few months old she was just a baby wow um and uh I wanted so much to work at ILM and I was so amazed that they're even offering me an opportunity because they knew that I don't have any professional experience. So just to, for anybody who's not in visual effects, because this podcast is not just for visual effects artists, ILM, oh, okay. Industrial Light and Magic is probably the world's most famous visual effects company. They did uh, you know, Star Wars and Jurassic Park and all the big, they basically invented the industry they started the industry. They've invented it, and they're still uh, one of the most, uh, you know, they still work on the biggest films out there, including uh, all the Marvel, uh, all the Marvel movies, and uh, and uh, I mean, they're kind of frequent everything. collaborators. Yeah. Everything, Star Wars and Marvel, mm-hmm. and anything you can think of. Uh, they are still they are still amazing, and they're still you know pioneers every step of the way. You yeah. Know, what, what, what they did on the Mandalorian. Now you see it everywhere at the kind of using of what they call virtual production. Yes. Uh, where you use a game engine to screen, uh, you know, and the LED Back screen and all that. But, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're, they're always innovating. That's what's great about them. Back then they just opened a branch in Singapore and they brought people from all over the world. So we were a, really a, an international bunch. And within that international bunch that they first called the digital artist group, they weren't quite sure what they want to do with us. Right. I think they wanted to make kind of teach us everything. Hmm. Uh, and then they probably realized that it, you know, they better focus each one of us on a specific task, like it usually is in the big companies. But yeah. at the beginning, we really got, we learned a lot. I learned so much there. 
Um, but yeah, I, I joined this group of people that were all in their 20s or early 20s when I was in, I was 40. That's crazy. And <clears throat> I mean, just to recap, how do you did how do you do that is because you started with this sort of unfamiliar program at the time view. Uh, I mean unfamiliar it, it was it was a groundbreaking software that allowed people to create these ex- expansive uh, environments which was back at the time very computer heavy and a lot of softwares a lot of the main sort of uh, industry standard softwares had a hard time with this large number of of, of, of trees and objects and you know uh, view kind of uh, uh, created this uh, allowed artists to 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 bring all that detail into those environments and uh, and from what I understand view hired you based on work that you've done sort of amateur work you've done with your on on your own time they hired you uh, to create environments for their demos and to uh, and to sort of be an ambassador for the for the uh, exactly yeah yeah I was uh, back then I was still a musician and I was just doing stuff with view and posting it online I, right. And they saw this, and they thought that I could, you know, could be useful for them to to help, um, you know, create material. And right. So I did that from home in Tel Aviv. They they're based in Paris, and um, so I worked for them for two years, and I kept making, you know, um, view stuff, and that I th- apparently came into the attention of the ILM people, the matte painting department, because they were using view at that point. Yeah. And yeah. So they were like, let's bring this guy over to be our view artist. And then I came to Singapore and they said, well, we don't really need or we're not going to use view right now. So right. they didn't know what to do with me. It's <laughs> and, <an> interesting. Uh, <laughs> the, funny, the, funny, uh, the funny thing is that it, it's, it's kind of a repetitive story that I hear because Hugo Guerra, uh, Gecha, who was here yeah. uh, a few episodes uh, back, who is a visual effects supervisor, he's based in London. He also sort of got his break his uh, opportunity to work for the mill which is also a world-leading uh, company that specializes yes. or used to specialize in commercials but now they do everything um, because of his uh, familiarity with nuke which at the time was not a big uh, tool now it's used everywhere in the industry um, and just because he at the very kind of early stages of his career sort of took the leap and started learning this new tool that nobody uh, really used he got this amazing opportunity and another another guest I had uh, Colin Levy who's uh, who's uh, much younger um, but also a very successful uh, artist he just uh, sold a sold a show to uh, peacock if I'm not if I'm not uh, mistaken um, and he um, he also kind of had his start with blender so uh, blender right. is also this sort of out uh, open source uh, 3d software uh, that is all free and uh, people used in in the in the professional world people used to mock this uh, uh, this software not anymore not, not anymore. anymore right because yeah, people, yeah. They've, they're starting using it now professionally and he he also got his first sort of uh, big job offer as by blender by the manufacturers of blender just like you did with view um, to come in and help them uh, create content using blender and the next thing he got was an offer to work for Pixar so wow uh, which is also a bit, you know it's a, it's phenomenal but i think it's a, Look, it's a great takeaway yeah i i think it's well it's a good jumping board if you you know if there's some new uh, software technology or procedure that you yeah. kind of um you do stuff with it and you become sort of a, a leading person at least for a while right. um in that area 
which gives you an edge because you know a lot of people ask these questions like i'm i'm going into an industry that has all these people you know and all of them are talented and i'm a compositor or i'm a texture artist like what are my chances to get accepted here or there get this job or even be noticed when there's right. so many others now it's not easy now i to me it was all unintentional <laughs> i wasn't <laughs> really thinking ahead of like right. this is my plan is to be this and that in the everything kind of just happened but you can you know if uh, but i think what helped me i mean there there is of course a little bit of a a, a luck factor in there but, but really what helped is the fact that for that moment view was something new and innovative right and i was kind of at the leading edge of it on on you know on the on online on the yeah. internet i was doing that's, stuff with other people notice and how did that it. how do you what do you attribute to that because at the time i mean it was a different world now it feels like there's so much stuff online it's really hard to get noticed uh what did you do that made view notice you at the time uh i think that i just by chance the place i was posting to they were looking at it so there what, was what, a play i think it may st- still exist called renderosity Okay, yeah, I think I've remembered. I, it may still be that. there. It was just an amateur website, you know, and, and right. most of the view users were amateurs and they posted their stuff and people would comment just like any other right. online, yeah. you know, forum. And, but I guess it just, people started, you know, the, as you post, people start looking at it. There is a kind of the more people, it still works like this today, but I agree that today is so much harder because you know how many youtube influencers do you have how many people doing podcasts right you have to do for each it's so gigantic exactly. and back then we're talking you know 12 13 years ago everything was smaller yeah online These so, are a smaller place <laughs> yeah unfortunately you know i think today you just have to have a really good demo reel as 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 good as you can show and i i you know sometimes i see so i'm jumping ahead to probably something that you know, but i'm finishing my second book right now yeah and as part of that i wanted to find the book is about photorealism okay it's it's a it's a guide to photorealism the Mm. the whole the only thing the book talks about is how to make things look real both in cg and 2d and for different um different sections not just visual effects but also architectural rendering product visualization and games Right, because the you know the the, the same the, the same kind of rules or aspects or is, issues kind of go around all of this. Uh, it all has to do with light and so forth. And for that, I was looking for photoreal artwork, CG and two D. And um, you know, I was just looking around at art station, and I found amazing, amazing renders and amazing work from people from all over the world yeah some of them you know a lot most a lot of them not known to me but also you know not known in the community or one of the images that i'm using which i, I find to be extremely photoreal as was created by a student who mm-hmm. hasn't even started working wow. and yeah. so you can find through that wealth of of you know you, you can spot people who are extremely talented right um, so there, it still works like this. It's just there's so much more of it. Yeah. So much more. Yeah. So the chances of bumping into someone. It reminds me, I, I did this uh, did this spec commercial for Doritos. Doritos does every year 
a uh, for the Super Bowl, they do this competition for commercial for independently created commercials for Doritos, oh. and I decided to go. And my idea that actually was not my idea was my cousin's idea um, was to to have a, a monster eat a kid in the commercial, and the with uh, with uh, Doritos being somehow uh, connected to the whole story. Um, and uh, I wanted the monster, and the monster obviously was ha- had to be CG. And uh, I looked online, I searched for monster designs. I've actually searched for designs because I had someone in mind to create the monster. I just wanted to give him some references. And then one of the designs right. caught my eye. And as I was looking at the guy's uh, portfolio, because I wanted to see what other monsters he's, uh, he designed, I realized he's a neighbor. In, uh, he lives in Pasadena. <laughs> I, I was in LA. I was like, hey, he's, he's close by. So I wrote to him and I called him. And a few days later, we had coffee. And he basically designed the monster from scratch for me. And uh, he's also a 3D sculptor. Uh, so I basically got... Uh, and he was young. He was still a student at the time, which was also crazy. It's very simple, similar to your story. Uh, and that's how I ended up getting the monster, you know, it was completely by luck and he's a great, you know, good friend. Now he works in the game industry and is very, uh, successful because he's super talented. Wow. Um, that's, that's a nice story. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, so like you're saying, I mean, I'm, I totally hear you. Those examples are everywhere of, of, but it really takes a lot to just dive through, through the, the, sometimes when I watch all those uh, artists, especially now I'm watching on LinkedIn, I got, you know, for some reason, the our algorithm keeps throwing these like work samples into my feed. Yeah. It's never ending. It, 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 it is almost depressing how much, how much art and, and, and talent is there out, out there knowing, you know, knowing that uh, it's so hard for people to, to break through and but, to. But it is in every, you know, every type of art. Like if you're a musician now, I mean, just 10 years ago, you know, there were people making CDs, you know, and you right. release an album and it's something physical. And most people who want to succeed have to be attached to a, a you know, a company or, you right. know, an agency. And, um, and now it's, I mean, there's, there's so much music around. There's yeah. so much that I think if you're a musician and you're just starting and you have a band, like, what's the point? <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) It's very discouraging. Right. There's just so much of it that we didn't even know exists just 10 years ago because you didn't have a way of knowing it exists. It existed somewhere, but yeah. um, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's everything. Also, you look at all this software and it's all the same. Now Maya is doing the same as Max, which is doing kind of the same as Houdini or cinema 4d. So you have all this wealth, of tools right so much of it and you have to decide what you're going to focus on and you know um uh, the, the whole that kind of wealth of everything and visual effects i mean you see uh you know you see a i don't know a big hollywood movie uh the avengers or something and you wait for the credits at the end and it's a list of thousands you know yeah crazy over a thousand people yeah and uh, it's kind of mind-boggling. So you know, where are where are those? You know, where where is me inside all that? Right. M- my own creativity, my ingenuity. I'm not talking about myself. I'm talking about in general. You know, for yeah, every person. I'm just. There. Am I just a little bolt in this, uh, you know, giant factory machine, or is is there still place for for what I can bring? 
Exactly, and you and you are a visual effects supervisor. We'll we'll jump to that in a second. But uh, so you have a, an interesting vantage point to that because you you oversee people who are each super talented, and I'm sure you know uh, have the same question that they're asking themselves uh, from time to time uh, about you know their place in the in in the machine and. Yes, I mean, I was lucky enough to work uh, in the, these past 10 years as a visual effects supervisor in New York. Um, I was part of a, um, a relatively small company called Brainstorm Digital right. that was, um, you know, is, specializes in features, which is kind of unusual in New York. There's right. not a lot of, you know, New York is mostly commercials and design, and mm-hmm. there's, but there's a lot of um, shooting uh, or before the pandemic there was a lot of a lot going on in New York because it's a obviously a city that you want to shoot movies in and also there's tax incentives um, so there is work we had and you know I was lucky enough to be to work on on some really good movies not all of them of course and to collaborate with you know great directors and cinematographers and in terms of the artist, I always worked with, uh, you know, a, a relatively small group of people that I knew very well, which is an advantage. So we oh, yeah, yeah. have our, our core group of artists who are not only talented, but amazing people. And I know them personally. And that, in a way, is, it makes the work more enjoyable. Right. Because you're not, not just dealing with input-output, you know, getting versions from an- anonymous artists that you've never yeah. met. You don't even know how they look and what they do. And you just... So as a, as a supervisor, it's not just looking at shots. I mean, that's the main part of the work is looking at shots and giving notes and deciding when they look good enough to send to the client and being on the set and dealing with the, the, the director. But it's also talking to the artists and working with them, you know, together in a small, more intimate environment. And and um, what was your first project as a visual effects supervisor, like working with a director and sort of... So um, I I was the compositing supervisor at Brainstorm um, when the previous supervisor um, left and they, you know, I immediately jumped into the the job and we were working on, on uh, Boardwalk Empire that time, oh, wow. season two. So I had to jump straight into the uh, the lion's den, so to say. It wasn't mm-hmm. some little, you know, production or some, right. you know, some indie movie that no one will hear. It was, a, you know, HBO's, at that point, it was uh, HBO's flagship um, series. Um, what so, was it like yeah, to I, step to step on set, you know, this, you know, machine, well-oiled machine of people who know all the terminologies and have been there so many times? And... Well, I was, uh, first of all, I was lucky because there was the uh, production supervisor, uh, even though we were the main or we did almost everything on season one and two, um, there was a, a, a main production supervisor. Okay. Um, who was dealing directly with the producer. So I did not have to deal with that. And when I jumped in, it was already shot. Oh, I see. Okay. So I was not on set for this. But, uh, you know, as soon as we finished this, my first on set experience was the, a movie called The Immigrant, a James Gray movie. Okay. Um, a beautiful one that was shot in New York City in the winter. <laughs> it was cold. And, um, and that's where I, you know, that was my first actual onset experience and yeah i've got to say that i got into the onset part from the other side from the from the visual effects cg from the what we call on the box side 
from someone who does it. And so my challenge was to learn all the terminology, like you mentioned, uh, on the set. Right. To talk the language of the filmmakers. And also because it's to a different language. To understand where the lines, you know, are drawn between one department and a different department, and who's in charge of one thing and who's in charge of another, and uh, you're not allowed to touch anything that uh, the gaffer put down, or exactly, <laughs> it's it's yeah. like going, it's like stepping into a completely different country now that yeah. is ruled by some, you know, some really <laughs> weird um, dictator where there is a very strict hierarchy and there's very strict rules, and God forbid you do something that's not by the rule. And, and you just so came from your own country, and, yeah. yeah. And definitely, I had a lot of you know problems at the beginning realizing, yeah. you know, you have to tiptoe around. It's an art by itself, right? There, there's the head totally. of department. You know, me as a head of department of the visual uh, have to deal with other head of, heads of department. There is a lot of pride in movie making that I don't see that much in the actual, you know, post production visual effects the pride of every, like the sound, the head of the sound department, you know, they pride themselves on what they do. They would do it the best they can. I mean, everyone does, but there, there is something about this pride and the union and, you know, I do it my way and yeah. you don't overstep your boundaries that you have to learn. That's part of it. Um, and working with the, the camera department and the DP, which is most of the work. So people, Ask me like, oh, you know, you worked on the trial of the Chicago Seven. So, well, did you get to talk to uh, to the actors and right. all? And I'm no, I don't talk to the <laughs> actors. There, it's right. not. It's not part of my job. Maybe if I was a hairdresser, you know, or exactly. wardrobe um, or makeup, uh, I talk to the director, to the assistant director, and mainly to the DP. Right. That is the person I have to work with. And that is right. the person where that will define what kind of experience me as a VFX supervisor will have I'm on the set. Have, right. I'm just yeah. adjusting. And there's, of course, yeah. a different variety of... Uh, and I'm, I'm, I think maybe one of the things that I see is, is being so lucky to be working with uh, amazing cinematographers like, you know, Vittorio Soraro or Bruno Del Bonel or Darius Conji. These, these are... The Amazing, top cin yeah. cinematographers the and and um, it's you know if you have to establish a relationship with them, which is not always easy because these are people who are not only at the top of the game, but again, there is a lot of pride of being yeah. a cinematographer, and you have to understand their language, and you also have to represent your side, which is the VFX side. So. Yeah, and you know, guard your back. Make sure you're not uh, shooting yourself into corners, and uh, sometimes you have yeah. to. And <laughs> yeah, and, and what I realized is that the the cinematographers that work the best with visual effects are those who listen and care about the visual effects. Not all do. Some are uh, afraid of visual effects, or they feel like it's interfering in their work. I've worked right. with. Um, you know, I'm not going to say names, but I had these experiences too. Um, cinematographers were, who would rather not have you around. Like right. you are, you come there to stick this ugly green screen and mess up everything, their lighting, their spill, everything, you right. know. And they're the cinematographers who understand that you are now part of their shot. Right. You and, and the artists who are going to do it, you are part of the shot and they have to, you know, work with you because 
eventually their shot depends on what you will be doing so what do you what do you think about uh, the fact or what do cinematographers you work with think about the fact that uh, it's a little bit like you know losing control over their canvas you know because they they're the first ones to throw paint on this on this uh, on this canvas which is whatever they shoot on the day and then you're gonna extend the background or you know add a a star in the in, in the sky or some something that uh, they would in a in a perfect world would be able to control themselves as they're shooting are they um, do you find first of all are some cinematographers uh, present in the post-production as well kind of giving notes at, at all or uh, that you worked with uh, or Or what's the process like for what do you feel like their uh, their processes or their way to uh, communicate I think there, yeah there there is as many processes as there are cinematographers which I think applies to you know all of us in a way um, some cinematographers are very involved in the uh, post-production uh, some of them come to the especially in the DI stage and of yeah. course it, it, it makes sense they, they are this is part of their world. Um, some shoot their stuff and are like, okay, I did it. Now you guys take it, do whatever. Right. I finished my job. I'm happy with the way it looks now. If you want to ruin it later, uh, be, ahead. You know. <laughs> but I, I think the, you know, the ones that, um, you know, I'll give you an example. For example, sometimes we shoot, um, let's say a night driving scene. Okay, you have a night driving scene and you're putting green screens so that we're going to be able to replace the window, something that, you know, is being done all the time. Um, this the 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 DP and and the gaffer will set up the uh, the lighting or the brightness on the green screen to optimal levels which right. which are by the book and then I come and I ask them to reduce the lighting the reason is that I want to have a darker green screen behind my subjects because I know that I will replace that uh, with a that dark screen background. with a, with a dark dark background right and I want to protect the edges. Mm-hmm. And if there's too much of a difference in luminosity, the edges are going to be bright and ugly, and the compositors will have to struggle with it. And right. eventually the shot will lose. Uh, for some cinematographers, it's like me stepping out of bounds. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. you're not going to tell me how to light a green screen. I know, I've been doing it for 20 years. And in, in a way, they're right. Uh, some cinematographers will say, whatever works for you, I will do it because... you're the you know yeah. so the attitude changes and I have to to deal with either one or with something in the middle right if if they're against it I will try to explain the the reasoning behind it they cannot possibly think of every step down the line in terms of visual effects this yeah. is not their world just like exactly. I am not really involved in how to fit this lens onto this body you know that's not my world exactly yeah so you Yeah, it's, it's something that you only learn from experience. There's no book for it. But that's one of the reasons I wrote my book. Exactly, <laughs> which is a great segue. So you decided at some point, I mean, you've, you've done some uh, courses, like you mentioned, at uh, uh, School of Visual Arts, and also I know FXP, uh, F, yeah. FXPHD, which PhD. is an online course. Yeah. Um, about, uh, I think it was about matte painting and environment uh, Design, I no, did or? I think three new courses oh, that focus on environments two view courses and two speed tree courses yeah um, which are all tools if, that are designed for like creating environments in in three yeah because yeah. I, I love it natural environments yeah, yeah. and um, and then 
At some point, you've de- you, can you talk a little bit about what made you decide to, to write that book? Like, have you ever written any books before that are unrelated to visual effects? Or? No, I, I didn't write any books. I did write, um, many years ago, I used to write little tutorials and articles for a 3D World magazine. Yeah. Is- um, it's a British magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, I would do usually view tutorials when I was, or, you know, I, I wrote some software reviews as far as I remember, but these are very, you know, two page, um, yeah. pieces. Uh, no, I didn't write any book. I, I felt very strongly, you know, just like we discussed right now, how important it is for filmmakers to understand the process of VFX, if not down to like the buttons to push in Maya or Houdini, not to that level, but to the level that relates to them. Right. Um, like, why would you want to push down the, the lighting on the green screen, for mm-hmm. example? Um, and also for producers, especially on, in, in, for, the, for the budget side, because these questions are, are come all the time. Why is this shot so expensive? Why is this one not? And these are two green screen shots. Why is this one three times as much? Well, there is a reason for it, but yeah. it's hard to understand. So I thought maybe I'll do um, maybe some... I don't I'll write some online tutorials or something. I wasn't sure how I can, but I felt there's a need for it. And then I was actually contacted by Routledge, uh, Focal, the um, the publisher, um, the guy, the acquisition editor, just uh, emailed me through my website oh. and asked me if I would like to write a book. Wow. And I said, yes, and actually I have an idea. I know what I want to write about. So it was uh, immediately I felt like, yeah, that's what the way. Made, what do you think made them uh, reach out to you specifically? I mean, did, were they uh, impressed by some previous work you've done or courses? What, what was the, you think? Uh, the? I don't think he ever told me exactly, but I'm assuming acquisition editors go around and look for potential people to write about certain subjects. And since he was okay. in charge of, you know, filmmaking, um, he was maybe looking at my website, saw that I worked on this film and that film, and and, and thought that you could, you know, maybe. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure, <laughs> but uh, he reached out to me, and um, that started the process, which ended up with the book. That's crazy. And, yeah, and um, yeah, the book um, was much easier for me to write than the one I'm working on, or I just finished working on now, because it always was already all there. Mm-hmm. Like I knew what I want to say, um, and it sounds like you were. I mean, I've I've written a, a small article, you know, not not anywhere close to you know scope of of your book about giving notes about ways to give notes on visual effects effectively, uh, which was well received. I mean, I FX PhD actually uh, took the article and and re. re- published it on their on their website uh at some point or with uh with my permission and but that came out of uh out of a sort of an urge to communicate because you know as after work uh, after a few jobs a series of jobs and one was with a great communicator a, produ- a director that really knew how to uh effectively give notes and one was someone who did make made all the mistakes possible yeah uh, so i had this sort of I had this uh, this uh, kind of information that I had to dump on something, so it was kind of a the brain dump. It was an outlet for this, you know, for the frustration that I felt, and you know, in seeing the two polarized, you know, approaches. So was that something similar to the way you uh, uh, 
that may, that what made you kind of uh, think of think about this book? Sort of a combination of uh, good examples, bad examples, something that you, your brain kind of wanted to just channel into uh, something. Yeah, well, there's different parts in the book. There's different chapters, and some of them are more informative. But there is a chapter where I discuss communication. And right. I know it sounds like a cliche, but communication is almost everything. And it's true in everything we do in life and in every kind of profession, but we still tend to forget it in visual effects. And I have to say that as a VFX supervisor, there were days where I couldn't sleep at night because somebody gave a note and said, you know, this shot is not looking good. This is looking CG. This doesn't look real or something that hurt your feeling very much, even though <laughs> you're not even the person who... Who did, did the, the shot, shot yeah. you know, <laughs> but I feel they're all like little, my little babies in a way. I feel responsible. And we tend to forget this. We tend to forget that there are people behind it. There's, these are not machines that make this, of course. They're artists and they have feelings and mm -hmm. they're usually, usually trying their best and sometimes they fail. And they're a visual effects supervisor like me who try to make everything look as good as possible before sending it to client. And sometimes don't know what the director wants or think differently or make a mistake. Right. We're all people and that's totally understandable. It still strikes me as, uh, you know, surprising how, how many times this is completely, you know, it's just not understood. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And some of it is, you know, you would have a director sitting in a review room with a supervisor and a coordinator who notes down the notes. The coordinator is just tries to follow up a stream of thought of a director and types it all in, hoping to not miss anything because they're trying to do their job. Everybody's trying to do their job. But then he sends this stream of consciousness email or something or post it on Shotgun to me or, another, or some supervisor who then has to decipher this stream of consciousness or... On the other hand, some other coordinator decides that they're going to short, you know, short script what the director said into a few words. The shot doesn't look good. It looks too CG. Yeah. And send it over, which in, in that case, you're not, you're trying to decipher what that means. You know, plus you feel bad yeah. because you feel like you've been shouted at. And <laughs> it's very easy to do it differently. Yeah. It's very easy. I, I, you know, you can write... You know, this is looking much better than last version. I really like this, but this should be. And there are ways to be specific on frame X and Y. I feel that the top corner is too bright or something like that. Right. Yeah. It's it's all doable. It makes a huge difference. I, I have to give an example. Uh, for example, the last um, big project I worked on, and that was all remote from home, was the uh, trial of the Chicago 7, right. the Aaron Sorkin's movie, which just came out recently and i was on set in chicago the two weeks that we shot all the riots in chicago which was you know a lot of our work was adding more people yeah you know that the part you know you obviously you're limited in the number of extras you can employ on the set and we had to double the extras and and the cups and you know, make everything look bigger um and you know i felt so lucky working with an editorial department um, the editor, the assistant editor, and the second assistant editor, that even though they worked from home too, because they were forced to, you know, go home and, and uh, work remote, it, they were so professional and so precise in what they wanted. 
and they also listened to the other side and understanding of any difficulties. And there was a, a good dialogue going on that even though we were slammed with like 200 and something shots with a very limited team working from home, it was a pleasure doing it. Yeah. And the, com- the, the good communication and good, you know, um, human personal relations, uh, relations makes all the difference. Oh, totally. It, in in our you know it really makes the difference and i think that directors would would communicate differently on set with people that they interact with personally you know in person than they would you know on email with a this sort of virtual entity that is somewhere else that does you know uh, does this magical thing they don't really understand that you know so much uh so much such, such a technical um process sometimes yeah and 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 i agree that a lot of times filmmakers feel intimidated by visual effects because we're doing all this weird stuff that it's not quite clear which is another reason why i wanted this book out to write this book um and when you're intimidated you're suspicious i worked with a director like this on one of the projects i worked on that kept saying yeah, you guys are gonna you're gonna charge tons of money from me. Ah, you're gonna ruin us. And it, it, it was like, so what, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what am I doing here? Even you know, why are you so suspicious of us? We're not nobody in the VFX business is just trying to enrich themselves. It's yeah, it's usually the opposite. We're doing a lot more than we're getting paid for. Um, what is this suspicion? We, you know, it's. We're I was doing on a, the same thing as everyone else. I was in a, on a PGA Producers Guild of America panel a few weeks ago about uh, about visual effects in the time of COVID and how to use visual effects to help. And and uh, I had uh, other people on the panel were way 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 out of my league. You know, I had uh, ILM uh, a head of production at ILM and this woman uh, I forget her name, but uh, you know, like a dream to work with and and uh, people from. Um, from the biggest uh, studios and and me for some reason I don't know why yeah. I, how I got in there, uh, but one thing I I added constantly to the discussion was uh, no, noting that a lot of the producers listening to this panel are producers who might you know this might be the first time of them working with visual effects because they don't do films they don't do visual effects every film every film now has visual effects but some of the producers listening to the podcast might not. Uh, might not have had a lot of, not the podcast, the panel, might not have uh, had the opportunity to to work with uh, big visual effects companies. Of course, now with COVID, if you need to do certain certain things you, you're, you're, you're relying on visual effects to do now are much more complicated than the bread and butter that yeah. you know, independent films have to deal with on a daily basis. And my, fir- my main contribution was to just kind of ease the tension I mean, it wasn't. It was a silent audience, of course. It was a Zoom Zoom uh, panel, but I kept saying, "Look, just first and foremost, we're your friends. We're there to help. We're filmmakers, just like you. We want the best for the film. Where a lot of times, bringing us on set is not necessarily going to uh, uh, cost you more money. On the contrary, it's going to save you money. And anytime, any opportunity we have to." lower the cost to simplify to get stuff on camera that you might have thought might you know has to be a visual effect we will we will uh urge you to do that to save because we don't want to do we don't want to spend our time doing something that was could have easily been done practically on set you know just what for it's not like we're enjoying you know 
redo, you know, doing work that is unnecessary. We want, we want our work to matter. We want to be there when you need us, not to, you know, just. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think, look, I think that it wasn't like always like this. I think you mentioned ILM doing Jurassic Park. I think things were very intimate back then. Right. The teams were smaller. The work was smaller. Um, there was a lot more of intimacy in terms of relationship between the filmmakers and the visual effects. I think, you know, the big VFX movies of the past five, six years really changed that. I mean, think of it. We are, you know, like I said, you know, an Avengers movie would employ up to 2,000 different artists, maybe more, you know, I don't count. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> um, uh, maybe 12, 13, 15 different companies all over the world. All of them have VFX supervisor and like huge hierarchy of like, and imagine on set, you know, you have one guy holding the boom. Imagine you would have, you know, 1500 or 2000 boom hold, you know, boom guys on the set. Right. That would be mind boggling. It, it's how, how you even deal with it. So because it becomes such a giant you know, kind of enterprise, you're starting to treat it like like um, like a factory, yeah. you know, like building a seven forty seven. You know, you have all these entities, and everything has to be coordinated, and you have to do it because otherwise it's going to be a mess. Right. But you're losing the feeling that visual effects. You know, you're starting to call them vendors, which right. is just a word, right? But there mm -hmm. is some connotation of the word is somebody who's selling you some. They're going to produce the little thingy in the seven forty seven that you stick in the cabin and does that, you know, and right. they just do that. Um, and it's affecting how we think when we call things a certain way, it's affecting how we think. So I say, Oh, there's this vendor who's doing the rotos for that stuff. Um, you know, they haven't delivered on time. So everything becomes like about delivery. And I'm not saying it's not important because you're, you're paying money, you have a budget, you have to make a movie, but we have to find ways to re-communicate the artistic side and re-communicate the fact that we visual effects people are part of the filmmakers community and part of the, the team that makes a movie. Yeah. And totally. actually now we are very important. Some mm -hmm. movies, yeah, as, as everybody likes to show those, if the that movie didn't have visual effects, this is what it's going to look like and show all the green screen shots. And it's, it's fine because people don't realize that. Yeah. But... Um, we become a very uh, a crucial part of filmmaking, but on the other hand, we're becoming more and more industrialized. So when you say industrialized and magic now, it suddenly sounds something <laughs> else. There's less magic and more industry. Right. And but it's you know I, I sound a little I don't know pessimistic <laughs> or blue. <laughs> That's not the intention. I just I think it's important. You know, if every step of the way, the, the coordinator who passes on the notes from this entity to that entity remembers that there's people on the other side, not some kind of amorphic vendor entity, then the whole work is, is going to be better. Right. For sure. And let me ask you something uh, related to the book. So once you've, once you've uh, published a book or they've published a book, were you uh, at all involved in the marketing and uh, and the sort of distribution and helping the book find its wings and find its audience, or was it sort of something that was uh, was done by the publisher and you were? And what was your takeaway from the book? What what do you feel like the book contributed to you once it was out? You know, when what it was out in 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 the world. 
Well, I, I never wrote this book to make money. Uh, obviously, these type of books, which are called, you know, textbooks, um, are not, you know, they're, they're, they don't sell like like a, like a novel, like a successful novel. But, right. um, you know, it's still doing very well. It's doing very well. Like, you know, I get the reports um, every six months and, and I can see the, you know, the rankings on Amazon, which is a sort of an indication, not accurate, but right. an indication. And I'm happy to see that the book, I also got a list from the publisher that shows all the different colleges and universities and film schools and art schools that have adopted the book as a, as a textbook. And that's the thing that makes me the most happy because this is where I want it to be. I think that's where it can help the most. Right. With students, people who are just now learning the profession or learning to be filmmakers and it's enriching, you know, their learning experience. Um, as far as, look, the publisher does some marketing, but they are a big publisher and they have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of books. Uh, so I felt like I need to do my own with my very limited means. I'm not really an internet personality. I, I don't get along with, uh, you know, social media very well. I'm not, I'm not very social. So <laughs> Online, I, let's I say did... it this way. And that, uh... Uh, yeah, well, but I did my best to try and, you know, let people know about it as much as I could. Um, you know, I'm, I'm happy with how it went. That's that's the main indication to see what three, four years after it it was published that it still, you know, sells and 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 people read it. It makes me very happy. That's yeah. you know that's why I wrote another book. I, I, you know, it empowered me to to go through this process again. I know, which is probably not an easy process. I mean, I I, I remember in the, in the other podcast you mentioned you hardly had time for it. You had to do it while traveling because that was the only time that you were kind of, you had dead time on your hand between shoots, between days where you're not, we weren't supposed to be on set and things like that. Yeah, um, and here I was behind schedule and um, I know it sounds horrible, but what saved me was the pandemic because suddenly I had a lot of time, you know. Right. The, the things went very slow. The entire film industry just stopped. And within that whole configuration, I suddenly realized that I have uh, a lot more free time and, and I can devote it to finishing the book, which right. was behind. Yeah. And uh, the, the book is harder because it's, it goes much deeper and it's, um, it's geared towards artists rather than filmmakers. So it's oh, wow. our yeah, CG so and to the artists that much deeper. That, and, you know, it, it goes a little bit into even the physical behavior of light and, you know, the, the new CG tools that we have now. And, and, you know, I won't go into details because I know, you know how familiar the, the listeners, are, listeners are with that. But uh, um, it's, it's a very interesting, fascinating subject. I was always fascinated by photorealism and the synthesis of reality with artificial means. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm trying to hit on, on these subjects from very different perspectives and so the book is bigger, longer, uh, has more detail in it. I think it's going to be um, a very interesting read, but it was a, a much longer process to mm -hmm. get it all done as I felt like I have to learn a lot more. And I, what do you I, think you know, of the medium books versus, yeah, I, I was reading your book and, you know, I have it here and sometimes I, I would take a look at the pictures It'd be like, and then I looked at your website, and a lot of the a lot of the samples that are here, you know, printed on the book, the samples from Wolf Wolf of Wall Street and Boardwalk Empire, things like that, are 
are there in your website moving you know with all in, in all the glory and you can really dive into them have you ever felt like this book needed some kind of digital companion or a sort of um, if this book was had some high hyperlinks that takes you to uh, to the actual clips definitely for this book um, well maybe it's a bit too late but this is something I am very seriously planning for the next book since it, it, it needs that even more yeah um, uh, one of the things for example even a simple a simple aspect that you see a, you know a very interesting work art artwork in the book but you know the, the image is small because it's in a book and you can't right. zoom in mm-hmm. just to have the ability to look at it and zoom in and look at detail right. I think is is uh, is really needed so I I am planning and I hope this will work out to to this time accompany the book with the website and I'm even hoping that this website will will give stage to more photo real work or techniques from other people right not just me go along right yeah I'm 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 gonna get that book for sure I can tell you that. Uh, you. and what about uh, reactions to the first book from have you gotten I'm sure people contacted you just like I have based on uh, based on uh, reading the book or, or being aware of it um, was there any interesting stories any surprising uh, reactions you uh, you can share I mean there, there were a lot of interesting and and you know and heartwarming reactions and people for example there was a filmmaker from I think the West Coast I don't remember if LA or San Francisco who contacted me and said I just finished reading your book you know I'm just working on on a movie that I'm producing by myself and I'm, I'm you know I, I'm thinking you know the visual effects I wanted to talk to you about it more to ask questions and I, she said, Just reading the book opened my mind to the possibilities of, of using visual effects for stuff that I didn't think I'll, I'll be able to, to solve issues that I didn't know how to solve. Yeah. Thing about wow, the movie. And I think that's one of the things, that's one of the reactions I get from quite a few people who contact me because of the book, um, that they realize that visual effects nowadays is certainly not something just for Avengers or sci-fi movies or Star Wars. It's definitely a tool, a filmmaking tool, just like editing and sound and color that you can use um, to help you, you know, create what you're imagining to create right. your movie. And even if you use, even if you're on a very low budget, visual effects is not something, you know, you don't have to hire Weta to do the work. Right. And there are ways to do things that can, like you mentioned before, can save you a lot of money. Or help you create a sort of a vision exactly. and and I you know that really makes me happy when people say oh you know I read your book and now I, I see that I can do it this way or I didn't think of it so and I guess I'm gonna start wrapping up but uh um, you're writing your second book now it's uh, when is it coming out uh, it will come in 21 so 2020. it will hopefully in in a few months or a couple months go into production and Then there's a process the production process until the book actually comes out I don't have a definite date that depends on the publisher but yeah it was um, always slated to come out this year I mean 21 I'm curious because you've already I mean you've had this career as a storyteller you were using sound to create to, to tell stories and to help creators uh, you know tell their story then you moved into visuals uh, the visual storytelling part ended up helping you creators tell their story with visuals even though that's not specifically what you were going for when you started uh, or when you started that migration 
So you seems like it seems like you got all the you know those two things kind of conquered. Are you uh, ever curious about taking on more of the storytelling sort of disciplines and maybe becoming a storyteller yourself or like in overseeing both visuals and sound, which basically makes you a director in a way? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say no. I never wanted to be a director. And I, <laughs> for some reason, making movies is not really what interests me. I think I was always attracted to the visual side. Uh, in movies in movies and and of course to the sound size because I wrote music not so much for movies as as for theater but it's very similar to writing music for I, I have to say that most movies I watched the m- music doesn't really you know I, I I don't find it very exciting mm-hmm. I think that m- movie music especially in Hollywood in, in American filmmaking ha- have become a sort of a a, a cliche. Not a cliche, but uh, also a bit industrialized. Right, yeah. Know? Very, very and, repetitive. Yeah, and, you know, mm. I find more interest in, in, in like, musical theaters or places where that give the music a bit more. I'm, I'm, I mean, there are some movies that have amazing music, but there are few of them. Right. There's more movies that have amazing visual effects to me now than have amazing music. But, yeah, I, I don't plan on becoming a director. I don't think no. this is a path I want to I wanna choose. Have you ever been offered based on your onset experience based on your uh... no never and I don't think I ever indicated to anyone that this is something I would like to pursue so I see. Uh, that, that has never been it's funny I got to movies through my doing CG environments you, you know my fascination right. was with more of like the photography right. side of it. than the movie side of it. And I learned movies as I went. I understand mm-hmm. movies so much more now and movie making than I did 10 years ago, but it wasn't because I wanted to make movies. Um, Got it, yeah. And so I, I guess another question, because my, from my, exper- my experience on films, usually the films I'm on, I'm in charge of everything. There's no separation between 2D matte painting and a 3D creature effect or whatever you know that happens there. But in your case, I assume it's a, two different departments or you know comp- you, everything ends up in 2D ob- at the end of the day. but uh, when it comes to, uh, to asset creation characters and things like that, you probably have uh, different people in charge of that side of the pipeline and also maybe on set as well, like supervising the, at least acquiring that information or, or do you oversee that as well? No, on, on, uh, look on set, the supervisor is responsible for everything. So that could be, uh, you know, and it's not always clear at that point, if a certain shot will need CG or just 2d, right. sometimes it's clear. Sometimes you don't, the methodology is not clear. A VFX supervisor has to be familiar with all, All of the aspects and right. and I am I actually started in 3d not compositing right but I can say that nowadays I'm much more of a compositor than a you know a, a proficient 3d uh, but compositing and lighting are very similar and they they kind of play together right and there is a strong connection between 3d and 2d first of all a lot of compositing now is also has 3d in it mm-hmm. so the the you know the 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 differences are blurred nowadays um, right. But yeah, in, in bigger companies, the, these are different departments that are, you know, work with different software and have different methodologies. Um, but as a head of, a, say, the 2D department, you have to be in connection with the 3D because those things, the assets are being shared. Um, right. So, you know, you have to go back to your 
to to the 3D department and say, can we get, uh, you know, um, a direct diffuse pass or can we get a a position pass or, you know, or could we get these separated in these layers so that we're able to come? And so it's, it's all connected. Yeah. It's all interconnected. Okay. And so I guess my last uh, few questions is first, um, you, that's kind of how I wrap my episodes is what would be your advice you would either give people starting now or yourself if you could. Uh, of course, you started with already, at least in the visual effects world, you've started with a, a career full of, a, of, of at least work ethic advices, which I assume was, was a great way to, uh, to enter this new career because you've obviously had a ton of knowledge you know, when it comes to just work ethics and things like that. But yeah, uh, what, what would you uh, want to leave people with? Specifically, uh, this podcast at this time now with COVID nineteen, you know, can you can integrate that into it as well? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's it's hard not to integrate it. I mean, we are recording this podcast in very unusual times, right? And I have to say that my previous year at SVA, uh, the 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 students who graduated in this last spring. You know, my heart goes to them because I had a, a class, a big class of 17 students, and most of them were extremely talented, and I was very yeah. impressed with them. And usually I would try and bring the most talented to work at Brainstorm with me because, and or at least to help them find uh, a job somewhere. And, you know, I saw their difficulty of getting a job. And it's breaking my heart. So these are difficult times. I, right. I, we can on, only look... Um, at the future and hope that things will get better eventually, you know, whatever, I don't know how long it will take. I'm not ex- an expert on that. Um, these are difficult times and they're also very tense, you know, politically in the U S right now where we have right. an election in a few days. And, um, but regardless of that, my, my first advice always to everyone was do as much as you can just do stuff, right. do stuff, Put it on the internet, put it on your website, put it on, on, on ArtStation, put it somewhere. You don't know, you never know what will someday get to someone, you know? Right. So do not just sit there and say, well, what do I need to do to succeed? Don't ask this question, just do. Right. Do what you want to do, do what you're best at, and let people see it, and they'll decide if it's good or bad, if it's worth it or not. You know, don't exactly, bother yeah. with that. I think that's my first advice just do yeah and from and what a great uh, example you you're setting yourself with uh you know the, your your starting sort of your, your starting journey in visual effects um and um the last thing is where can people find you online which is a funny thing to say obviously the book uh is available on amazon i'll plug it here again the visual the, the filmmaker's guide to visual effects uh do you already have a name for the next book um, it will probably be called the complete guide to photorealism. The complete or, guide to photorealism, and the long name would be the complete guide to photorealism for visual effects, visualizations, and games. I'm trying to say it, and I'm breaking my tongue. But <laughs> <laughs> maybe, it's, but that's what the book is. It's trying to be, you know, a kind of a wholesome right. guide to this. Uh, and judging by the first book, I'm sure it's going to be super coherent and uh, and well, you know well packed and uh and uh and because this book is great in terms of you know a lot of the things here obviously i already know this is not i'm not yes. really the target audience for this book right. if anything um 
Actually, the reason, not the reason, I got this book a while ago because I was like, I, I have to own this book if anytime, anytime a filmmaker one, you know, asks me something and I want to be able to point them at some, at, at a source of knowledge. Uh, and, and so for that, I thank you for, for putting it all on paper. Um, but another reason is because I was actually thinking of putting together some kind of a course for filmmakers about visual effects because I went to school with filmmakers. I'm surrounded by filmmakers. You're right. I actually have more interaction with filmmakers than I do with uh, in the visual effects side. So I feel like uh, like that's an opportunity to share some of my unique uh, uh, entry point into this. And I wanted to see how you uh, how you had it all kind of organized into a into a coherent uh, uh, coherent uh, syllabus. If, if if that's the word, I don't know, or like a table of yeah, content. Yeah, yeah, uh, and it's uh, and it's it's great. I mean, it uh, it's so uh, just from reading it, it's it's very uh, it's very well uh, put together. Um, and so that there's that, and I know you have a website arandinor Yeah. Um, and on your website, we can there's uh, great examples of your work. I I will also uh, I have the this podcast has a website which. Uh, if anybody listening to it does not know, then it's probably the first time you're listening to this podcast, uh, but it does. Uh, so, uh, and, and every episode gets a page with a bunch of things that I embed on the website. So I'm definitely going to introduce, in, include some, uh, some samples of your work, but it's, uh, I'll just on a, you know, the stuff you did on, Wall, on Wolf of Wall Street was remarkable. I know that it also got a lot of attention because you've done a lot of in, invisible visual effects. People right. don't even know were there. Uh, and it was such a high-profile film when it came out. People were uh, very, uh, it seemed like the, you know, the internet was kind of uh, all about all those vis- invisible visual effects. So that, that was a great, um, also a great service for us, for every visual effects artist out there um, to have people sort of, to open their eyes to the possibilities of visual effects beyond what's obviously, you know, like a sort of a, a, a impossible spectacle that people right. usually associate visual effects with. Um, and yeah, so if is there any other place online that you like people to contact you that you want to uh, plug or? Well, I can give you my email and you can put it up there. I'm, I'm happy to get emails, you know. Okay. It's right. the easiest, fastest way to connect. They can also send me messages through my website and that will reach Right. Me. And that's great. And then and then apart from starting this new role at Fuse Fix, what, uh, what else do you kind of, is there anything else besides that and the, and the film that's coming out that you sort of, you're, you're excited about uh, that's about to happen like maybe i know covid is kind of obviously poo-pooing on everything but yeah i'm, I'm very excited about the microsoft uh, microsoft uh, flight simulator i'm really into oh, it yeah <laughs> so maybe that's my next Talking about uh, career realism <laughs> yeah Man. part of it i i got it be, because i was really interested in in the you know in the photorealism of that which is or it's it's obviously a giant step uh, forward but then i really got into just flying planes so i'm really interested in that do you uh, fly so, planes in reality? Or no, this is something. Here's something I missed. I always wanted to get like a you know a, pilot's a license, license yeah. just on a you know like a small Cessna or something just for the fun of it. And in the states, it's easier to do that right. than in in Israel. It's also cheaper. And I didn't do it because I didn't have time or I don't know didn't have enough drive. And now it may be a little too late. I don't know. Maybe not. But I'm not sure. I've got I can... Microsoft. <laughs> I'll just mention that I am also in the process of getting a pilot's license. Really? Yeah. Okay. 
so we have to talk after this podcast or in another time just about that <laughs> yeah oh. for sure i that's, i kind uh, of I, it all stopped when i had my baby it sort of reached a halt because my wife was like yeah let's wait a little bit because she was a little scared of me uh making crazy mistakes out there yeah uh, but uh but yeah i got to land i was just there was this close from doing my solo uh flight but oh uh, so you're advanced already so yeah I, well i th- I actually had a head start. I was uh, in the in the pilot training program in when I was eighteen in the Air Force for oh, about man. for about eight months. so i got I got to fly uh, the Piper Fuga. Piper Piper okay. Yeah. Right. didn't get to the Fugas. That's my biggest uh, regret because the Fugas are awesome. And <laughs> I got to learn all about them. i got to I got to uh, simulate being on them. And then I got this, like, and then I got thrown out of the course like, a, a week before we were supposed to start uh, the actual. Well, training. I'll get back to you then, because you, I'm sure you'll help me do better landings before. I, I feel really embarrassed by how. So. In the flight simulator or in yeah. reality? No, in, in the flight simulator. <laughs> I think I'll focus on the simulation for now. Right. Well, the trick is all about speed. You got to make sure you got to look at your speed, make sure that it's yeah. in a very, there's a sweet spot there for speed. I know that in theory. It's like talking theory <laughs> to a VFX artist, but it still right, doesn't right. mean you can do it right. <laughs> True. Yeah. Oh, okay, fair. Uh, all right. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I'm uh, very glad I had this opportunity to talk to you right before you're diving into this, you know, super busy time, I'm sure. Uh, and uh, maybe we'll have you. you back later when the book is out and uh, you have a little bit more experience in uh, on this yep. new job thing. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So thank you so much again. Thank you. And- and that was it episode 30 of the post post podcast i hope you guys enjoyed it as always if you like it feel free to share leave a comment recommend it to people and um until next time stay inspired Bye.